Genesis chapter 30, uh, 33 is our scripture reading today. Uh, we will just be reading Genesis 33 during the morning worship service, even though um, during the prayer service we're going to read and make comments on Genesis 36. Um, hear the voice of God. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him four, were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, and they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down afterward. Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it el Elohe Israel. This is the infallible, inerrant word of the Holy God. May imprint its eternal truths on our hearts. You may be seated, and the children are dismissed. Before I begin my sermon in the text today, I have to make a correction and a retraction. Uh, just a, a note, last week I had mentioned in our sermon that in Jacob's prayer, he did not use Yahweh's name, and I was in error. He does use Yahweh's name. And the reason I'm making this correction is that I, I was wrong. I was incorrect in what I said, and so I wanted to let you know that he does use Yahweh's name, though that was not the main point of the text wanted to correct that mistake I made last, year when I, last week when I misspoke. But this text we're looking at today, Genesis, is Genesis 33, 34, 35, and 36. Four chapters in these next two weeks. It's a lot of material, a lot of stuff here. And I labored over how to present this, how to write, how to preach this text for a couple of reasons. One, in, this, in these four chapters, we will find one of the most disturbing narratives in Genesis, Genesis 34, regarding the rape of Dinah and the pillaging of the Hammerites. One commentary said that it is the most difficult text in Genesis, and I agree. So, okay, how do we fit that in this narrative? 
Secondly, the lengthy descriptions of the family of Esau in chapter 36, we have an entire chapter just naming Esau and his descendants and the chiefs and the kings, the Toledot of Esau. And the difficulty with it is it doesn't have really any uh, biblical history or theological significance to us today. It did to the children of Israel, had a huge significance to them, but it's one of those texts that were like, this is there, but the names don't tell us anything about patriarchs, or they don't tell us anything about the Messiah. It's like, it's, it's very difficult, and it's just a lot of really hard to pronounce names. But we are committed to um, the reading through of Genesis, and so what I'm actually going to do is, I'm just going to spend some time during our prayer service today reading Genesis 36. We're going to read through it, because we're going to read through everything in the, in this, in the Genesis, and I've just got three brief little notes about it, and then we're going to pray concerning it. So we're not actually in a sermon on Genesis 36. I, I kind of was going to attach it on to today's sermon, because it's talking about Jacob Esau, then we'll just finish Esau up. We'll just finish it part two, you could say, during prayer service. And then the third issue is chapters much in chapter 35 that actually just seems to be tying up loose ends. You know, what happened to Rachel? How did Benjamin get born? Uh, Isaac's death, uh, the 12 tribes. It's just sort of really tying up loose ends in the Jacob story. So how do you preach a sermon on that? Um, so it's just a very difficult sort of how to do this. So this week, we're going to focus on chapter 33. Um, then read about Esau in prayer service. And next week, hit 34 and 35 together in one sermon. I don't want anyone to think that anything in these four chapters is insignificant. It is the inerrant word of God. However, different things written in the scripture have different uh, relatability to us today. And so that's why I'm focusing on chapter 33 as the, as the primary one. And then chapter 34 will be the big focus next week. Let's go back in our story, though, to what's going on in our text. Where we left Jacob last week was his conversion, him wrestling with God in night. And it is not insignificant that Jacob wrestles with God and he is blessed by God and he holds on to his God, his Lord, now converted as day is breaking. In other words, there's a metaphor in there for us. We sang about it in the song, Dark, dark is the night. My God is all I need. There is fear that is surrounding Jacob. He is not only in the dark physically, there's a darkness that is surrounding him. Just on the other side of the river, just at the, at the daybreak, there is, as he supposes, a very angry, murderous enemy ready to destroy him and his entire family. Now, he has wrestled with God and prevailed, meaning he did not die. He lived. And this gives him courage and boldness. But I think it's important to recognize, because this happens to me, and I'm sure it happens to you, in a struggle, in a battle of wrestling with God, in our conversion, or perhaps even after our conversion, in the struggles we have with the flesh or with others, and then we, we are at peace with God. We're like, yes, God is all I need. But then morning comes. And Esau's still there. Morning comes, and the frightening meeting with your boss is still on the calendar. Morning comes, and your spouse is still there, and you're angry with them. Morning comes, and even though we are at peace with God, there are still people around us who make life difficult and scary. And that's where Jacob is. He's right with God, but not with his brother. And that's frightening. He has looked on God's face and lived, but will he look on his brother's face and live? The fact that Jacob will face his potential, potentially angry brother with his life and his entire family hanging in the balance the night after his conversion encourages, encourages me because we can be tempted to think that becoming a Christian, trusting Christ should 
bring to us a pain-free existence. It's just not the case. Yes, there is the hope of God with us, Emmanuel, the reality of that. Yes, there is the Spirit of God who indwells us. And yes, there is the promise of eternity. But the promise to wipe away every tear comes at the end of the age. There are still tears and fears in this life. But God had promised Jacob that he would be with him wherever he goes. Is that true? Is that true? The story begins in chapter 33 with Jacob lifting up his eyes and seeing his brother, and the text makes it clear, with 400 men. He sees a daunting enemy in front of him. Esau's intent is vague in the text. We don't know what it was entirely. Um, We're confused by it because as we read the story, Esau doesn't seem so angry. But then Esau also brought 400 men. This isn't his family coming to welcome Jacob. Okay? We say, well, there's 400 men. Well, that could be anything. Well, later on in the text, he offers to leave some of these men as bodyguards. So that does tell us what these men were. These are soldiers. These are warriors. So why does he come to meet his brother with 400 warriors? I think Jacob, Esau's intent, my opinion, is Esau's intent is a, we'll see. I think his intent is, let's just check out what's going on with Jacob and then meet him here. And I've got my 400 men and they're ready, but let's see what happens. I think that's his intent here. Now, why Jacob read it probably arranges his family this way with the different statuses, so to speak, of the, even with his own, not only his flocks and herds, but even his own children, the uh, maidservants who have children that are his and the before, and then Leah, and then Rachel with Joseph at the last. There's two possible options to that. One is that he's trying to protect Joseph and Rachel from Esau's rage, and so he puts them last, like let the others die first, historically. I mean, Jacob does love Joseph. We'll see that later in the Joseph Chronicles, right? And Rachel, deeply. The other option there was presented by one scholar who suggested that this was a common way, a formal way of meeting in a a diplomatic way, which the whole story is very diplomatic. It's not like brothers on Jacob's part meeting. The The words he uses, the way he approaches, it's like a vassal meeting his overlord, and this was a diplomatic, perhaps a diplomatic way of arranging in rank of inheritance. I think it's very clear that though that Jacob wants Joseph to receive the inheritance, the blessing, the patriarchal inheritance. So that's one of the ways of doing it and introducing. The reason why I think that's probably correct rather than cowardice on his part or wanting his children to the ones he liked less to get hurt first, rather than that is because we see in the text that Jacob actually runs out in front of them all. So that doesn't really fit the same idea that he's being cowardly or running, that he gets in front of them. So I don't think that's it. I do think it's a cultural thing that we just don't quite get. Now, the text here, which we read, is a bit laborious and a lot of formal dialogue. Jacob and Esau's conversation, well, Jacob's side of it, is dripping with cordial formalities, Middle Eastern niceties is happening in this text. Let me summarize the story, though, again. Jacob clearly shows himself to be the younger brother in the meeting. He clearly shows himself the younger. He has discovered his place, so to speak, in the family order. Um, He's culturally inferior He defers to Esau. He bows before him. He offers gifts. And his language is polite and formal. My Lord, he says. Esau clearly shows himself to be the elder brother in the meeting. He's the one that approaches Esau and falls on his neck and kisses him. He's the one that doesn't say Lord or say my my servant. He says brother. In the text. 
He controls the conversation. He's the one that asks the question, Jacob answers. And even when Jacob offers the gift, Esau does the very common Middle Eastern thing. He, recli- he declines, he refuses the gift. And as Jacob insists, keeps insisting, he receives it, but not without letting his little brother know that he doesn't need it. Like, I'm I'm good enough, but I'll take it. So it's just very polite and formal, and we see who is the older and who is the younger, which is such a reversal from 20 years prior when Jacob pretends and deceives his father to be the elder, and Esau defers... And in this, when I say defers, he was angry, but he basically says, let's Jacob get away with it. Now we're, we've got this reversal back the other way. So that's what's going on in the story. The whole exchange is written and meant to be surprising. Interestingly, the next chapter, 34, is also filled with all sorts of twists and surprising things in the storytelling. Moses was a, a tremendous writer, as he even writes this. For example, it probably doesn't go the way either one of them expected. Esau came with 400 fighting men, but doesn't use them. Jacob expects a lot of, at least a cold, if not violent reunion, but is met with tears and a kiss. Jacob calls Esau my lord, while Esau calls Jacob my brother. The whole thing is strange. So the big question in interpreting this text is what happened? What's going on here? Has Esau's anger simply subsided over the past 20 years? He's just cooled off? Is that what's happened? Likely true to a degree. But then notice where he's meeting Jacob. He's meeting Jacob at the northern part of Canaan in that time. Esau's coming way down from the bottom, outside of Canaan, from Seir all the way up. In other words, He's hurt. He's kept track of his brother. He knows his movements. And he's coming to meet him before he even gets in the land. He's heading him off. Also notice the 400 men, already mentioned. Notice that Jacob has kept track of Esau's movements with his scouts. There is an awful lot of tension here. And it's supposed to read that way. Some Genesis scholars see Jacob as being deceitful here with his my Lord language and bowing down and the gifts and all that sort of thing. Oh, same old Jacob. He's just still doing that. Others see it and read it and see him as actually being genuine here. Um, the lack of a clarity from the text to tell us their intentions, it just doesn't come up in the text. Kind of leaves that up to debate, I suppose, except I think there are some clues in the text and the broader context that cause me to see Jacob actually, I think, as genuine here. And Esau is genuine here. This is the story of estranged brothers who truly reconcile. And as Psalm 133, 1 tells us how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And that's what we see here. But how does that come about? How do they reconcile? How does this happen? Esau seems warm in his reception, doesn't he? He falls on his neck. He embraces him. He kisses him. Don't have time to trace the whole idea of kiss, but remember Jacob kissed his father, came near to his father and kissed his neck to deceive him. Jacob was greeted by Laban with a kiss and deceived by Laban, and now Esau reconciles with a kiss. There's just something neat there, another time, another place for that. But why is Esau so warm then? What has happened? The text doesn't give us any context to know if something has been happening in Esau's life for the last 20 years. It gives us no story of what's been going on. And so it would be sort of foolish for us to try to assume that Esau also has been converted. Possible, maybe even probable, but there's just nothing to tell us that. But we do have the context of the previous chapter. And I think what happened here, I'm going to say it, then I'm going to try to prove it in the text. I think what happened here is that Esau was ready 
to kill Jacob. But the Jacob that Esau meets is not the same Jacob that Esau knew before. Something is different. Esau sees that something is different, and reconciliation takes place. Let me try to prove this if I can. First, I mentioned last week that we saw that there was one of the evidences of true conversion is there is fruit. There is evidence of it. Something comes after. And I think in this text we actually see four fruits of conversion in Jacob. And I think that's why there's reconciliation with the brothers. First, we see courage over cowardice. We could argue, we could debate what was going on with Jacob, why he was alone at night on the river Jabbok, why he sent his children across the river, why he, why he did all this. We could debate all those reasons why. But he is in the back of the whole situation. But then when he sees Esau, he runs to the front. Now, if you think about Jacob's life, he's always been the heel grabber. And to be the heel grabber, where do you have to be? You're always in the back. And then if you get to the front, it's by causing a distraction over here so you can get over here to the front, right? That's what he does. That's who he is. That's his character. It was his character from birth, even, as is described. We see it as interactions with his parents. We see it as interactions with, with Esau. We see it as interactions with Laban, even the cleverness in him besting Laban. It's trickery. It's not full-on face, and then he escapes at night from, from Laban, right, and tricks him and doesn't even tell him he's going. All this, you build this together, <coughs> and then it does stand as quite a stark contrast when it says, in verse 3, then he crossed over before him, before them. Then he went in front of everyone and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He's courageously drawing near to his estranged brother. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know that Esau's going to embrace him. He does know that the scouts he sent gave a frightening report, and now he has seen that come to fruition with the 400 men. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, Now I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. He's not saying that Esau is God there. What he is saying is, I have seen God's face, and I lived. Peniel, face of God. I believe that I now see your face, or I have seen your face, and that's why I live. In other words, Jacob is saying, the reason why I'm standing before you, Esau, right now, is because I have seen God's face. And that gave him the courage to stand before his brother. Now think about that for a moment. Being right with God absolutely gives the courage to pursue being right with with others. Because if you can wrestle with God and prevail, then the wrestling match of men is not so frightening after all. And that's what he's getting across when he says, I've seen God's face, and now I've seen your face like it is God's, and he, like God's face, and he says, and you were pleased with me. Courage over cowardice. <coughs> the Apostle Paul puts it this way, if God is for us, who then against us? Jacob is certainly still fearing his brother, but the grace of God has given him the courage to seek the grace of his brother he had wronged. It's never easy to reconcile with someone we have wronged, but considering being reconciled to God by grace gives that courage. And I think we see the fruit of conversion is Jacob's courage. He steps forward here. Probably the most obvious one, however, is his humility. That's the biggest difference in Jacob, I think. I, his life was filled with me first. Suddenly, overnight, he suddenly thinks, others first. I'm going to go in front of them. And then he bows seven times before his brother. Now, what's this bowing seven times business? Um, 
Gordon Wenham, the, the noted Genesis history scholar, says, Jacob is doing more than acknowledging Esau's lordship. He's trying to undo the great act of deception by which he had cheated Esau out of his blessing. A vassal would bow before his lord seven times in Eastern culture. The Amarna letters, some ancient archaeological letters, really interesting thing to study out, revealed that this was a very common Eastern uh, sort of expression of humility. That you bow seven times, and seven is the day of the completely, I'm completely at your mercy. It's not that dissimilar to the, uh, what I understand to be the Japanese custom of bowing, essentially was rooted in bowing, exposing your neck, neck for your enemy to take your head if he so desired. That's the kind of custom here. Bowing, you can do what you want to me. Seven times. Now, what's fascinating about this is the blessing um, when Jake, and Isaac blessed Jacob, thinking he was Esau, he said this, may nations bow down before you, may your mother's sons bow down before you. And here we have the opposite taking place. That was what the blessing that was given to Jacob, thinking it was to Esau. Well, now you don't have Esau bowing down before Jacob. You have Jacob, mother's son, bowing down before Esau. You have a complete reversal of what was said was going to happen. He is, as it were, trying to undo what he had done wrong, humbly. He is now trusting the Lord to bless him through humility rather than doing what Jacob had spent his whole life doing trying to bless himself by hook or by crook. He's going to do it. And I think this act, more than anything, touched the heart of Esau. This was not the Jacob he knew. The Jacob he knew would have never found himself bowing before Esau. (laughs) My brother never did that. What is he doing? He is bowing before me. And in the text, I think that's why we see what happens next is that Esau now comes and embraces and, and they kisses him. And it says that they wept. This simple act of humility caused the hatred between brothers to melt into weeping with brothers. Thirdly, fruit of conversion is his giving over grasping. Heel grabber, grasper, one who grab at anything he can to enrich himself, whether it's grabbing at his brother's inheritance, whether it's grabbing at the sheep and the goats from Laban, whatever you look at, he's just always grabbing. But then he gives. He gives this, these gifts, these generous gifts to his brother. That's the next question his brother asks after the family introduction. He's like, What's with this gift? Now, Esau surely knew what it was because each servant was instructed to tell Esau, this is a gift, this is a gift, this is a gift. So Esau knows. I bet you that, I think there's a little bit of coyness here. What's with all the gifts? And Jacob says, it's my present for you. And this is where he says, because God has been gracious to me. He says, God has been gracious to me. Verse 5 is where he says, the children whom God has graciously given your servants. What do you mean by all this company? Verse 8, and he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Like, because God has been gracious to me, I want you to be gracious toward me too. And I'm giving you these gifts. Now, what's interesting is he uses the word gift or present repeatedly. Moses does in writing this. But then when Esau refuses the gift, he says, no. And he makes it clear, little brother, like I said before, I've got enough. I don't need your charity. We're good. Now, what would have the old Jacob done when giving his, when his plan to appease his brother worked and worked so well that his brother's giving it all back to him? I mean, we all know what Jacob would have done with what we've read so far to this point, right? Well, okay then, if you have enough, 
But you notice what he does here? Like, no, I insist. Take it. He's already good. His brother's already wept with him. His brother's already kissed him. There had already this reconciliation take place. There's no need, practically. I mean, it's kind of that idea when, when you offer something to somebody and you're secretly hoping they say no thank you. You're like, oh, good. I was really worried they were going to say yes about that. Um, I mean, that's the old Jacob, right? But the new one doesn't seem to be that way. You say, well, yeah, but maybe this is just a formality. No, look at the word to change. When he insists in verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. He doesn't say, receive the present so I can find favor. He says, because you've already shown me favor, that's why I want you to have it. It's not to get the favors because he has it. Now take the gift, the present. He says, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased, I've seen God's face and I lived and that's enough. Take my gift. Please, and this is the wording, take my blessing that is brought to you. Now what makes this so fascinating is all through this, the word gift or present in the Hebrew has been used, but suddenly he shifts to barach, blessing, or another word for that, birthright, inheritance. Jacob is essentially saying, this is what I stole. Take my blessing. Take my inheritance because I took yours. Giving what he had stolen. You might even use another word. We would use the word restitution. I've wronged you. Here. This is what I've wronged you in. Interestingly, when he says this is when Esau says, okay. Esau recognizes, I think, at this moment that it's not a gift, that my brother is trying to do what is right. He's trying to right his wrong against me. And at that point, I mean, it would now be insulting and quite wrong to not receive it. Right? And so he does. They're reconciled. So Esau, Esau's like, let's go home. Right over there, those mountains is Mount Seir, way down south. That's not home. That's been come home for Esau, but that's out of the promised land. And God had told Jacob, go back to the, your father's land, particularly Bethel. And so Jacob is now in a tough situation. He's reconciled with his brother, and now his brother says, let's go to Seir. And Jacob is like, oh, great. If I, if I don't go with him, I mean, that could be quite rude, right? Um, and let's be honest, probably not just quite rude. Uh, maybe he'll change his mind on his reconciliation if I don't go with him. But that would be against what God told him to do, because God told him to go back to Bethel. So what I think what happens here, and once again, the intentions, and it's a lot of formality, it's hard for us to totally grasp with the cultural shifts. I think what happens here is Jacob is not trying to be deceptive. He's not saying, no, 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 go ahead. I'll be right behind you. And he quickly drives the other way. I think this is the polite refusal to his brother. It's very formal. Um, and <clears throat> I'm probably getting myself in trouble by saying this. But it's, it's kind of like the, when, when somebody says, hey, we, need to, we should get together sometime. And you're like, yeah, we really should do that. Yeah, let's put that on the calendar. And that, I won't get in trouble because I've probably said that to people. Um, and I mean it. Okay, I mean it. But we've all been there where we have found, tried to find some polite way to not do something that somebody wants us to do. A polite refusal rather than like, no, I'd rather be caught dead than being with you could probably be a nicer way of saying it, right? Like, maybe sometime in the future. We'll see how that goes. That is, I think, a common cultural, different cultures have different ways of doing it, a polite way of saying thanks but no thanks. And I think that's what he's, uh, Jacob's doing here. I'm not 100% confident on that, but that's what it seems like to me. But there is also the idea that he says in verse 14, go on ahead, and he doesn't say we will come to you, but I will come to you to see her at a later time. And there are other possibility, and I think it's probable as well, that Jacob is saying, yeah, I will come at some other time, but I've got to go back to the land where I'm supposed to be, settle in. And then he doesn't say, we, my family, our flock, I, I'll come 
and see your brother. And I think he probably does. We don't have much record of it, but we know that they are um, burying their father together, and so they are, there is continued relationship. At the, Esau still doesn't seem offended by it. He offers to leave bodyguards with Jacob, and Jacob refuses that as well. No, I don't need that. And so Esau's not offended, so we probably shouldn't be offended for him. And he goes back to Seir, and Jacob, the text tells us, goes to the city of Shechem, or to the region of Shechem, probably, where the Shechemites live. It's the, the kind of the ruler in this area, which is just right on the Jordan River border and encapsulates the area, including Bethel. But isn't settle in Bethel, he settles in this, this city uh, near Shechem that he calls Sukkoth. And he names it. Sukkoth simply means stalls or booths, little like temporary structures. And he makes those to, for his flocks, and he builds a house there with his family, and they're settling in there now on the border of the promised land. Verses 18 through 20 tell us what happens, but they also set up the next chapter. But I want to point out one aspect of this that I think is the final fruit of Jacob's conversion, and I think the strongest evidence of his conversion. In verse 20, once he's reconciled with his brother, once they settle in and build a house there in Shechem, it says, then he, Jacob, erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. First recorded instance of Jacob building an altar. Sounds an awful lot like Abraham building an altar, altar once he had received the safety out of Egypt. But what's most fascinating about this is the, what he names this altar in worship. El, God, Elohi, God, it's repetitive. God, the God of Israel. Israel's not a nation, is it? Israel's not a people group. Israel's the name of a man, the name Jacob. His name was turned to Israel. And so he builds an altar and he says, my God. Now this contrasts strongly with his prayer the night before his conversion where he says in prayer, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. And he never says, and my God. But after his conversion, he now says, my God. It becomes personal, relational. Not the way he talked to God 20 years ago, Bargaining, striking a deal. If you'll do this, then you'll be my God. He says, you are my God. Fascinating here is that when he made that deal with God, he said, if you'll bring me safely back and give me all these things, then you'll be my God. Where he says this, he's still right outside the boundary of Israel. In other words, he's not back at Bethel yet. But he said in his promise to God, if you'll, do, if you'll bring me safely back to Bethel, then you'll be my God. But he's not at Bethel. He's not back yet. And yet he still says, but you are my God. No longer a partnership with God, but a relationship with God. Characterizes Jacob. I think these are the fruits of his conversion. This expresses to us that in chapter 33, Jacob is right with God. But Genesis 32 and Genesis 33 are companion texts. The truth and reality of Jacob's conversion does not actually depend on his courage, humility, restitution, and worship. But these are the evidences of his conversion. And I think this is important for us. Because we can be fooled into thinking that our good works, our faithfulness, our obedience, even our worship is the cause of God's relationship with us. 
And that is wrong. Good works, faithfulness, obedience, and worship is the effect, the fruit, the evidence of a right relationship with God. We are not saved by our faithfulness. We are rescued by God's faithfulness. And as such, we evidence His faithfulness in faithful living. And this is the pattern we see with Jacob here. We are saved by God's grace alone, the gospel. And when that gospel is received in faith, it urges us then as a result to walk in faithfulness to God's moral righteousness. Not as the root of salvation, but solely its fruit. The distinction between the law and gospel is found even in the Old Testament. And we must distinguish between them. But even still, chapter 34 is connected to chapter 33. 32, 33, 34 all go together. And this is next week's text. And I won't go into that except to say that we see Jacob sinning and failing in chapter 34. We see him in error. And we'll look at that next week. You can read ahead. We see him not so courageous and a little bit selfish. And I think that is once again a fantastic encouragement to us. Conversion, fruit of conversion, and yet failing as a human sinner still. The reformer Martin Luther used this Latin phrase, simul justus et peccador. Simultaneously justified and yet sinful. And I know you've experienced that as I have. Fruit of conversion, walking in faith, obedience, and then disobedience. If you want to read more on that, read the chapter and then go read Romans chapter 6, followed by Romans chapter 7. And you'll understand a little more about the, the struggle, the battle. But that's for next week. I want to apply and close the text this week. The point of this text clearly is, I believe, the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. We have this formal and lengthy description because the scripture over and over reminds us, and we even know intuitively, that being right with those around us, being right with those who have wronged us or we have wronged, is deeply, uh, um, a deep therapy, a deep healing. And the divide when we are wrong, especially with our brothers and sisters, is a deep pain and suffering. It is good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. The Christian life is one of continual reconciliation with those we have wronged or been wronged by, marked by true confession and free forgiveness. For your own study, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Matthew 5, 24, if you've got wrong with your brother, before you alter, before you offer a worship to God, go make right with your brother, he says. Romans 12, 9 through 21, humble yourselves and, 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 and don't take vengeance. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, as those who have received the forgiveness of God, forgive one another, be kindly affectionate. Constantly throughout the New Testament, there is a call for Christians to be reconciled to not only God, but to one another. And we have a great example of this in Jacob and Esau. And I just want to give four principles through this of reconciliation we might take from this text and apply in our own lives today as Christians. And the first one is very important, and that the ground of reconciliation is the gospel. The reason we can draw near to someone who has wronged us or draw near to someone we have wronged to pursue reconciliation is not because there is something in us or in them that makes it possible, but because we know that Christ has drawn near to us in reconciling us to him, us to the Father. In 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle says that the heartbeat of the Christian gospel is itself a ministry of reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God. And so the reality is that sin turns brothers 
into enemies. But the gospel turns enemies into brothers. And that's the concept here. The ground of reconciliation is the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul the Apostle is arguing for, for, for ethnic reconciliation in the church, Jew and Gentile, we might say uh, <clears throat> any ethnicity, any race, any demographic, any cultural distinctions between people. And Paul says the, the key of reconciliation amongst people around us is simply this. We have, been drawn, we have been brought near through the blood of Christ to him, and thus we've brought near to each other. And so in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, there is no distinctions like that. We are Christian. We are in Christ. We are brothers. Whether it's that, whether it's personal reconciliation, whether it's cultural reconciliation, whatever it might be, whether it's family reconciliation, the ground is the gospel. You want to reconcile with someone you are at odds with? Begin with meditating on studying, believing, receiving the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. That will draw you toward reconciliation with them. The ground is the gospel. But also in that, when we have settled that the ground is the gospel, know that it takes courage and humility. Reconciliation takes courage and humility. Both are not found from reaching deeply within us and working up the courage or working down the humility, but by meditating on, and in faith on the wholeness, the extent of the glorious nature of the gospel. See, if I can stand before God, quorum Deo, if I can stand before God's face and he calls me righteous, redeemed, I can live with freedom in front of him, then surely I can stand before my brother's face and it will be okay. It will be okay. But what if they don't forgive me? They may not. But what if they misunderstand me? They may. But you're good with God. It's going to be okay. Pursue reconciliation then in the same way that Christ came near you. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. <laughs> Do not approach a reconciliation then, I think, in a principle here with a to win the argument, but you're seeking to win the brother or sister. Don't then confess, because this is not the way it works with the gospel. Don't confess wrongs with caveats and excuses, but with open-handedness. Do not forgive with conditions, but with open hearts. This is how the gospel works. Do not forgive with conditions, open hearts, but surely true confession is necessary for true forgiveness and reconciliation. Even Esau went to Seir and Jacob to Canaan. Okay? It doesn't mean that now they were best buddies for the rest of their life but they were right with each other. Reconciliation often requires restitution and patience. Reconciliation with God requires restitution. Did you know that? Payment needs to be paid for your sin against God. My sin against God requires restitution. Some work needs to be done to become right with God. The only problem is, I can't do enough of my own work. I can't pay enough for the restitution. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ can and did pay enough and beyond. He paid the restitution, the payment for our sins in full on the cross. Restitution has been made. But with man, often restitution, man to man, restitution often is necessary. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, who's now converted, he says, now go back to all the people you cheated and give them fourfold. Go make right what you've done wrong. And reconciliation does require patience. I, I, this is just a, a small point before we're done. Twenty years have passed between Jacob and Esau. Yet both are able to reconcile because of the gospel 
because of the grace of God. And time is one of God's most significant servants. And for some reason, we don't like it. God employs time. Created Adam and Eve, they sin. 4,000 years later, Christ comes. Time. It's one of God's most effective servants. This is hindsight and speculation, but it would be fair to note that Esau and Jacob's reconciliation probably wouldn't have happened without those 20 years. You see, God was working in them, and particularly we know he was working in Jacob. And sometimes we are impatient, or I said most of the time we are impatient, and we're like, what? but today, but now, don't you know that it hurts, God? Don't you know? I mean, what, where are you? But who are we to assume that the very things that we are saying hurts and is bad are not the things he is using to bring about what is good? Time is his servant, and he employs it perfectly because at just the right time, after 20 years of humbling, at just the right, after, after the night, after the wrestling, at the break of day, at just the right time, that's when Esau and Jacob are ready to reconcile. Patience is required. Furthermore, um, Jacob and Esau are twins, right? So Jacob and Esau are both nearly a hundred years old when this takes place. Neither, well, I don't know about Esau. Jacob doesn't live much longer. He lived, I don't remember his exact, like 60 more years. So most of his life is not in reconciliation. But God wasn't late. He was right on time. 